So there you go. Um, but no, thanks so much for being here. Um, if it's okay with you, we're going to flash back just a few years to start out this morning to my senior year of high school. Oh boy. That's just, it's crazy to think. It's been about 12 years, 12 years since high school. Um, so we're going to flash back a little bit. Um, growing up, I loved basketball. It was my favorite sport. And so senior year, it's kind of like building the pinnacle. It's the last year of basketball for me. And we had a really good season. We had a new coach our senior year, Coach Walgren. Absolutely loved the guy. He, he was this incredible mentor and coach and, and just person and learned a ton from him. And things were building. We had a really, really good year. And then we made it to the sub-state championship game. So this, guys, this is big. This is the Arc Valley Chisholm Trail League Region 3 sub-state championship. This is a big deal, right? Like in, in rural Kansas. Um, so we're, we're playing this, this team called Circle. What kind of a team is called Circle? I mean, come on, but, but it was Circle, and they were a small rural, rural town in Kansas. And... Uh, and we're playing them for a chance to go to state. Like, it's been a long time since our high school had made it there, so we're, we're excited, but we're nervous. Like, this is a big pressure, big pressure game for us in a small town. You know, like, everyone comes out to the game. It's like the only thing to do. And, and so it's just this really, really good game. It's back and forth. It's close the whole time. And we won a nail-biter of a game. I think we won by like two or three points, and we were ecstatic. So we're going to throw a picture up there. Um, this is right after we beat Circle to go to state. There's our coach being hoisted up, and I'm somewhere in the back there with a mop top somewhere. Yeah, but, but anyways, um, it was awesome. It was like one of the, the greatest memories of my high school experience was winning sub-state we lifted coach up. He's like, man, I've been coaching for 30 years. No one's ever. He like won state and everything with different teams, but he never been hoisted up on the shoulders. We're like, this is sub state. This is a big deal. And so it was awesome because like people stormed the court. Um, like you kind of got to see in that next picture there, there was like this, this tunnel we got to walk through and people are going crazy and we're just kind of being mobbed. We're like, what is this? This is, this is wild. Something I never experienced playing, playing sports. Um, and so it was really, really cool, a really memorable night, and, and so we were going to state. And so, you know, we get our matchup to, to play in state in Salina, Kansas, the next week. It's like four or five days later, uh, we get on the bus, we head to Salina, playing in this big gym, and it was super exciting. Um, and we find out we're matched up with this team from Kansas City, Kansas City Sumner. They had a ton of D1 athletes, they were ultra-athletic. They had us all beat by like six inches. It was, it was a tough matchup. And, and we hung in there for the first quarter, and then we got absolutely obliterated. First round of state, got run off the court. I think we lost by 30 or 40 points. Like, guys, it was not good. And, and so that's how my high school basketball career ended. With a bang, not so much. Um, depends on how you look at it. But it was, it was crazy because it was a really, really hard game. And I remember sitting in the locker room like it's, it's kind of all sinking in. Like, this is it. Like, there's no more. I wasn't playing in college or anything like that. So this is the end. And, and I remember me and my buddy, Ryan, we were the two seniors on the team. And we were the last to leave the locker room. Um, and we walk out. And 
No one was there. The gym was empty. The, the lobby was empty. Like, so we literally walked out to our cars in the parking lot. My parents were out there by my car, gave my parents a hug, and we drove home. And that was it. And we're like, man, like going from sub-state to where people were storming the court to state, lose by 30 or 40 points, and no reception at all. People are gone. They're like, uh, that was awkward. We're going to get out of here and head back home, right? And so, like, it was, it was kind of crazy. All the hype the week before, and then this letdown of, of losing first round. And, and as I think back to that, it's, it just reminds me how quickly things can change. Like, the highs can be very, very high, but the lows can be very, very low. Um, in sports, um, but also in life and, and different things. And so I think this is a little bit of a picture today as we continue in Matthew of... We're seeing this kind of pendulum back and forth of Jesus being recepted by people and then being rejected, right? Back and forth. People love him. People hate him. People love him. People hate him. They turn their back on him. Yes, or last week, Jason was talking about how, how Jesus was rejected. Um, he went to his hometown of Nazareth, and the people rejected him. They're like, this guy from Nazareth? Like, nothing good comes from here. And they ran him out of town. And then it was followed by John the Baptist being killed due to association with Jesus. And then on the other side of it, he does this miracle. He feeds 5,000 men and then women and children, so maybe fifteen to 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, right? And the crowds are flocking to him, and he does this miracle, and people are like, oh my goodness, Jesus, you are amazing. You talk about a whirlwind couple of days where the lows, the lows are just gut-wrenching, and then the highs are, are pretty miraculous, pretty crazy. And, and this, is, this is what's going on for Jesus and his ministry. There's this back and forth going on. But in the middle of that, Jesus is on a mission. Jesus is on a mission. He's at work discipling his disciples, his 12. He's in the middle of all these crazy things. He has a focus on mentoring, teaching, leading, growing these men as followers of Jesus. He's progressively helping them understand who he is. So today's story is a pretty incredible one, but before we read it, um, I want to give us just a little bit of a context of where this is, uh, some of the setting going on here. So the section of Matthew, Matthew 14, 22 through 36, takes place in the region of Galilee, and, and this is where Jesus did a ma majority of his ministry um, it was really, really cool. We're going to throw a few more pictures up there. Senior year of college, um, had the opportunity um, over like our interterm January class, we could go on trips. And so I got a chance to go to Israel for, for three weeks, and it was incredible. If you ever get a chance, you've got to go see the sites, literally where Jesus walked and, and did his ministry and was crucified. And, and it's incredible. So you got to go. Um, but Galilee was actually my favorite stop. And so that right there is the Sea of Galilee. Pretty awesome. Um, it's about 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. It's about 80 miles north of Jerusalem, just for context there. Um, but it was really, really cool because we got to go to like the, they don't always know for sure the exact sites, but they, they kind of use, you know, their records and their best estimates on where things occurred. So they're like, this mountain is probably where Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount. And, and this is where, uh, this is the old city of Capernaum where he did a majority of his teaching and ministry. Um, we got to see the miracle sites actually where they think he fed the 5,000. So we're standing on this, this holy ground. Um, we also got to take a boat ride on the sea. So we actually got to ride that boat right there and, and just go out there and worship on the Sea of Galilee. Very surreal, right? If you can imagine um, just kind of being like, wow, this, was, this is where Jesus was 2,000 years ago. And so 
that boat right there is, is far different than the boat that Jesus and his disciples would have used back in their time, first century AD. And so this next picture um, is actually a picture that we took. Uh, we got to go to this museum in, in Israel there. And this was a boat that was discovered in 1986 in the Sea of Galilee. Um, obviously, uh, tri uh, fishing was a huge trade in that area at the time, a lot of fishing towns, and, and that was a huge um, just career and income for, for many people. In fact, I think, um, I don't know the exact number, but a lot of the disciples were, were fishermen. Um, but this is one of the boats, they call it the Jesus boat or the ancient Galilee boat, and it was discovered just like 30 years ago, and it dates back to first century AD. So obviously there's no way of knowing for sure this is the boat that Jesus and his disciples used, but that gives you a good idea of what it would have kind of looked like. Um, it's 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide. Um, any guesses on how many people could fit on there at capacity? What do you think? How many? 13, close. <laughs> 15, 15, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I like the math there. Jesus plus the 12. That makes a lot of sense. They could even invite a couple of friends if they wanted to, I guess. So, uh, but yeah, around 15 people. So, I mean, it doesn't look very big. So you'd be, you'd be nice and snug on there, uh, I'd imagine. But I just love seeing that because that just became, like, it wasn't this giant boat that we, that we got to ride in. This was a, a small fishing boat. And so um, as we read the story today, that just gives you kind of a visual of, of the scene and, and what the disciples um, were on during the story. So Matthew 14, if you want to turn there, um, we'll also have it up on the screen. But we're going to read Matthew 14, 22 through 36. We're just going to read through it all the way first, and then we'll kind of pick it apart from there. Starting in verse 22. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. So remember, just minutes before this, literally the same night he had just fed, done the miracle of feeding the 5,000, the crowds would have been stunned with amazement. Can you imagine? Like, they would have been astonished. Most of us would have probably wanted to bask in that glory for a while, right? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit back, you know, maybe we can throw an after party, let's have a parade, maybe I can sign some autographs for a bit. Jesus would have been an absolute hero, but not Jesus, he says, no way, I'm getting out of here. He's like, guys, we're packing up and we're leaving right after this miracle. So continuing in verse 23. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over to the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified. And began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When he climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. 
Then the disciples worshipped him, saying, You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. After they crossed the lake, they landed at Genesaret. When the people recognized Jesus, the news of his arrival spread, spread quickly throughout the whole area, and soon people were bringing all their sick to be healed. They begged him to let the sick touch at least the fringe of his robe, and all who touched him were healed. All right, so incredible story, right? There's, there's a lot going on there. It's probably a familiar story for a lot of us, um, but I think this story reveals five key things about who Jesus is in the middle of our storms. Okay, so we're going to go through these one at a time. Five key things about who Jesus is in the middle of our storms. Number one, Jesus is sovereign over you. Jesus is sovereign over us. So it's really, it's really quite awesome. So Jesus is the one who, it says, he insists that the disciples get back into the boat and cross the lake right before nightfall. Like, that's a big lake, and if you're in a little fishing boat, um, that's going to take several hours. On a calm day, it would have taken several hours. On a stormy night, it would have taken much longer. But not only does he send them off at night, but he says, I'm staying back, fellas. Like, you're on your own. Um, I'll, I'll, I've got some business to attend to. I'll catch you later. But from dusk, we don't know exactly when, probably between 7 to 9 p.m. Um, as nightfall is approaching, um, he sends them out, and then until 3 a.m., the, th- the fourth watch of the night, the disciples are alone at sea battling the wind. Jesus is holding the disciples and the storm in his hands. He's not with them physically, but he is holding them in his hands. How do we know this? Remember six chapters earlier, Matthew 8, um, Matthew 8, 27, um, at this time, there was a stormy sea. So they were out on the boat, Sea of Galilee, another storm. But Jesus was with them. You remember, he was sleeping. And the disciples are like freaking out, like, Jesus, wake up. You've got to do something about this. And Jesus is like, what's the big deal? Guys, calm down. He gets up. I just imagine him kind of trotting to the front of the boat. Be still. And the waves and the winds stop. He rebukes the storm. And they're like, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So we're not exactly sure how much time would have passed from this Matthew 8 time on the Sea of Galilee to Matthew 14, but it likely wasn't more than a few weeks or maybe a month or two. Um, They surely would have remembered the last time Jesus had power over the wind and the waves, right? But this time, Jesus isn't in the boat. So it's like, thanks, Jesus. You saved us last time, but now what? Like, thanks for saving our lives, but now you're just going to leave us for dead a month later? Like, come on. What are we going to do now that he's not with us? Yet, what do we learn from Matthew 8 to now? I think this story reveals that even when Jesus is not physically present, he's still sovereign over his creation. He's not aware, he's not unaware of the situation miles out on the lake. In fact, I think it was his design Like, this was on purpose. Jesus is saying, I'm staying back this time. I'm teaching you more of who I am. Last time I was with you, this time, you're you're by yourself, physically. But I'm going to show you that I have sovereignty over creation, whether I'm with you or if I'm not with you. And so according to Scripture, I think there's no question that God sovereignly ordains trials in our lives. Um, And we ask why. Like, 
God, if you're a loving God, like what, why do you allow us to go through these things? Um, and today we're talking about, I think there's so many things that, that Jesus wants to reveal to us in the storms that we don't see in the calm of life. Okay, so that's number one. Jesus is sovereign over you. Number two, Jesus is interceding for you. If you look at the text, what was Jesus doing while his disciples and his best friends were out at sea? He, you're kind of like, it better be important, right? If he's letting them go on their own, he better be doing something pretty important, like hopefully feeding another 5,000 people or something. But no, Jesus had climbed a mountain, got away from the crowds, and was by himself praying to his father. Right? He's praying. We don't know exactly what he was praying for, but I don't think it's a, stre- a stretch to think that he was probably praying for those he loved the most. He was pray- probably praying for his disciples, um, knowing what they were going through. Do we think about this when we're going through storms and trials? That Jesus is interceding for you. He's interceding for us on our behalf. How do we know that? Romans 8.34, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, he lives forever to intercede with God on our behalf. 1 John 2.1, Jesus is our advocate who pleads our case before the Father. Right? There's so many... Uh, Places in scripture where Jesus is fighting our battles for us. He's interceding. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we're not fighting our battles on our own strength. He's fighting for us even when we can't always see what that looks like. That's pretty encouraging stuff right there. So that's number two. We got Jesus is sovereign over us. Number two, Jesus is interceding for us. And number three, Jesus is present with you. So verse 25, about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. Here's where the story gets crazy, okay? Not only are the disciples straining at the oars, probably taking on water, again, um, not a very big boat, holding on for dear life in this storm, And to make matters worse, now they see this ghostly figure walking toward them on the waves. Like, just imagine that. Like, use your imagination there to kind of picture what that would be like. That would be absolutely insane. Um, Commentaries say that they may have been thinking that this was even an evil spirit that was coming to deceive them, um, because that was definitely something in the thinking at the time. They had legit reason to be terrified, Like, it would have been very strange if they weren't screaming in fear, right? This is, like, if you were to, like, a perfect storm of just crazy, wild circumstances, how could this get any worse? Like, this was, this was terrifying. Verse 27, but Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. Take courage. I am here. What's really cool about the kind of the language that Jesus is using here is, in the, in the NLT it says, have courage, it is I. Um, or sorry, in the NLT it says I am here, but in uh, most other translations it actually says it is I. And, and that's the same language that Yahweh actually uses in the Old Testament to reveal himself like Exodus um, 3 with the bur- burning bush when God 
comes to Moses through the burning bush and says, um, I am. Like, I am. Yahweh is in your midst. This is the exact same language that Jesus is using on the sea, saying, God is in your midst. Do not fear. Right? I think that is powerful. Jesus is dropping an identity bomb here on his disciples right in the middle of the storm. And he's not simply saying, hey guys, you don't have any reason to fear, but he's connecting it to, in the middle of the storm, you can find courage because Almighty God is here with you. That's incredible. That's incredible. So, number three, Jesus is present with you in the middle of the storms. Number four, Jesus is strength in you. Jesus is strength in you. This is where we get an introduction to, um, he's showed up earlier in Matthew, but we get to, to really see more about this guy named Peter. Simon Peter, right? Widely considered the most assertive and impulsive of the 12 disciples. He's always a fun case study. Um, there is so much he didn't understand through his time with Jesus. So many foot and mouth moments, right? Like he, he always found a way to kind of mess up the situation, stumble over his words, say something he shouldn't have, jump too far ahead. But at the same time, out of all the 12, his faith was unmatched. Like none of the other 12 could, um, could make a claim that they had the faith that he did in certain, certain circumstances. So in verse 28, Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. So notice the shift that took place for Peter here. After hearing the voice of Jesus, he knew the shimmering figure, this ghostly figure on the lake, was not a ghost. It was not someone to fear, but he says, Lord. He had this, this shift, just hearing the voice of Jesus. He's like, all right, I know who this is. This is the Lord. This is, this is the king. And, and so this was all the information he needed to think he should join Jesus out on the crashing waves. Verse 29, Jesus' response. All he says, yes, come. Right? <laughs> think about that. I read that, and I'm kind of like, um, if I was Peter in that situation, and he says, yes, come, I'd be like, okay, Jesus, do you have some sort of instruction manual? Like... Sandals on or off? Like, do I jump in? Do I step in? You know, do I need to throw the life jacket on just in case this doesn't work out? Um, right? I'd ask all these questions. Um, should I wait until the waves die down a little bit? Like, this is insane. But we don't see any of that with Peter. Jesus just says, Come, come to me. So, Verse 29, Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind and the strong waves, the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? All right, so it starts out really well, right? He just steps in and starts walking on water. Right? Like, what in the world is going on here? He's doing what Jesus is doing. So Peter has this burst of faith. He's like, I can do this. I'm walking to Jesus. I'm looking at him. I can do this. He starts walking on water. Things are going great. But it doesn't seem to last very long. 
Soon the wind and the waves pick up and his eyes dart off of Jesus and onto the storm, right? You also be looking at Jesus and then take your eyes off, right? (laughs) Keep your eyes on him. So yeah, he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he sinks into the the sea. Um, His fear had set back in. But thankfully, amidst his near drowning, he has the wherewithal to cry out, Lord, save me. Like, that in itself is pretty crazy. Like, like I am drowning, and yet you somehow cry out, Lord, save me. Jesus comes near, lifts him out, and, uh, and then rebukes him for having little faith. It's like, man, Peter was the only one who had enough faith to get out of the boat in the first place, right? And yet he's the one that Jesus says, you of little faith. But he pulls him back into the boat and, uh, and saves him, right? Now, there's a lot to unpack here with, with this particular section, but I want to stop and talk for just a minute about faith because I think it's a common misconception to hear Jesus' criticism of Peter saying, you have so little faith, and, and see that kind of as a command to just try to summon up more faith. Like, we have got to subjectively summon up cer- a certain measure of faith, right, so that Jesus is pleased with us, so that it's sufficient, right, to accomplish what it needs to accomplish. But I think if we're not careful, we can miss the entire point of what Jesus is saying here. What do we mean by that? Jesus isn't saying just measure up more faith. He's saying Peter's faith was little because he took his eyes off of Jesus. His faith was little because he took his faith off of Jesus and put them on his circumstances and his own strength. So the key point here is this, and we have a quote that we can put up there. This is from the the Christ-centered exposition commentary. It says, The most important thing is not the measure of your faith, but the object of your faith. All right, are we tracking with that? That's a, that's a big thing. It doesn't really matter how much faith you have in something if that something isn't capable of delivering, right? Like if I'm trying to, if I have faith that I can run through that wall back there, <laughs> like that's putting, that's pretty idiotic actually, right? Like I'm putting faith in my own strength my own power to run through that wall. That's a really weird example. Um, but like, what do you say? I can do it. He has faith in me. Uh, you're putting your object in a, in a questionable, your faith in a questionable object there. Um, but, but thanks for the faith. Um, but yeah, you get that, right? Like, like it's, the, it's not the measure of faith that, that we attach. It, it's, it's what we attach our faith to. Even if it's a little faith, if we attach it to something or someone who's strong, that's a strong faith. But if we have what seems like a ton of belief in something that has no power to deliver it, that's really a weak and and ineffective faith, right? Whether it's our circumstances that we're putting our faith in or our own efforts, they will fail to deliver every single time. Okay, so Jesus is the object that we have to keep our eyes on for an effective faith. Okay. Number five, Jesus is peace around you. So verse 32, 
When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. Notice what happened when Jesus gets out of the boat, right? What happens to the wind? It immediately stops. Like just his presence in the boat stops the storm once again. Guys, Jesus is the only one who can bring us total peace in the middle of our storms. His presence is peace for us. And, and what's really cool here is that this is a pivotal turning point for the disciples. Here in the middle of the night, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, on a small fishing boat, this ragtag group of men realize that they are standing with the divine Son of God. Like, that is a holy moment. Like, right? Just, just think about that. The middle of the sea, middle of the night, the light bulb clicks on. We're standing with God's son. And this is actually the first time, I didn't know this, but this is the first time on record in the Gospels where the disciples made that statement. Truly, you are the son of God. Now, they didn't have all the details figured out. They didn't know the, the how is this possible. They didn't know so much of the picture. But they knew enough based on what they had seen in the last 24 hours or so, with these miracles and different things that Jesus was doing, they had enough of a picture to say, Jesus, you are truly the Son of God. Flashback again to chapter 8, when Jesus calmed the storm the first time. It's really cool, because the disciples said afterwards, they basically, it basically says they were astonished. They were amazed at what Jesus did. Flash forward to this story. On this night, their response was different. It doesn't say they were astonished. It said they worshipped him. So what's the difference between being astonished, being amazed, and actually worshipping, right? Uh, many of you know I'm a giant Kansas City Chiefs fan. Woo-woo! Um, I have to find a way to get it into every sermon that I do. So it's almost football season, so it's, it's coming. Um, how many of you know this guy named Patrick Mahomes? Anybody? Anybody? There's a fan right there. He's my buddy. He's got the Patrick Mahomes haircut going on. Uh, Patrick Mahomes is the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, two-time MVP, two-time Super Bowl champ, and he can do some incredible things on the football field. Like, his talent is off the charts. Like, things this, the NFL has never seen before. Sidearm, like, basically on the run, flipping it, like, under, underneath like that. Just crazy plays that he can make that make your, your jaw drop comeback wins that don't make any sense at all, like down 21 to 0 against the Houston Tex Texans in the wild card game back in 2018, right, Brantley? Yep. They come back and win by 21 points. Like the things that he can do are incredible. I think about the words amazement, astonishment, right? Patrick Mahomes puts fans in awe of his talent, but he is not worthy of worship. I don't know him. He doesn't know me. He makes mistakes on and off the field. You know, he still throws interceptions. And I hate to say this, but eventually he's going to get older. And his body's going to start to crack. It's going to break down. And I hate to say it, eventually he's going to retire. And then we won't even witness his greatness anymore. Worship is reserved for one person who holds sovereign power over all things. And there's one name, the name of Jesus. 
we worship Jesus, we can be amazed at a lot of things, but Jesus is the only one worthy of our worship. The disciples, like we said, were still growing in their understanding of how Jesus could be God, but they had seen enough to conclude that he was Lord. He is the I am, the I am over food. He is the I am over storms. He is the I am over sickness. At the end of the story, he talks about all the people who came and just by touching the fringe of his, his robe, they were healed immediately. He is sovereign even over illness, and they worshiped. Jesus was finally starting to get some of that reception that he deserved. Like a lot of rejection from a lot of people, but he was starting to get some reception that he was worthy of. Now, this is a really, really cool story. Like one of the, the most miraculous stories in all of, all of the New Testament. But what do we do with it, right? How are our lives changed by a miracle that happened 2,000 years ago? You know, should we just grab our kayaks and, and figure out when the monsoon is coming into town and head down to Utah Lake and just see if, you know, will Jesus come through for me like he did for the disciples? <laughs> That's silly, right? Um, don't recommend it. But what does this look like to go from knowing to doing in every area of our lives through this story? So we're going to ask three questions just as we close today, th three things to think about. Um, feel free, they're kind of on your discussion cards, but we'll write these down um, and process them throughout the week. The first one is, what areas of life is Jesus asking you to get out of the boat? First, we have to think about what boat am I in? <laughs> it's not a fishing boat, but what boat am I in? Um, is it comfort? Is it laziness? On the other side of it, is it busyness, right? We're going so fast, doing so much that we don't take the risk of slowing down, right? There's both ends of that spectrum there. Is it fear? Is it the boat of doubt? Is it the boat of addiction, complacency, timidity, our possessions, distractions? What boats are we sitting in? What are we um, placing our hope in that is not placed in Jesus, be looking for moments where Jesus says, it's time to get out of that boat. Come to me. I'm calling you out. The call of Jesus is always going to be, are you willing to go all in with me? Two words, all in, are very scary, right? Like that's, that's sacrificial. That's trust. That's surrender. But are you willing to go all in with me in whatever boat that you're sitting in? And like Peter, it's probably going to be clunky, like, we're going to fail. We're going to stumble. We're going to get embarrassed and be like, why am I the only one who's failing in this? Why am I the only one who, who you know, kind of gets, gets rebuked for my lack of faith? Don't get caught up in that. Jesus honors when we step out of the boat and allow ourselves to be used by God to make a difference in the world. Um, staying in our boat is, is like that comfort zone a lot of times for me where, like, this is nice. So often in my comfort zone, what do I give up? I give up deeper relationships. I, I settle for minimal connection with people, or I settle for minimal impact um, in, in my life, in my job, and things like that. My comfort zone is something that even from a young age, like God is trying to pull me out of that. Like this is one of them. Like I always said, I pray to God. He never has me speak in front of people. Like, this was one of my greatest, greatest fears. Like, if you call me in a ministry, that's great, but let me be behind the scenes. He's like, no, I have a different plan. 
And, and so he's continually, there's always something else. He's trying to call me out of my boat into something that he wants to do to make a difference in the world. But risk-taking obedience is the doorway to seeing the power of God. Risk-taking obedience. What does that look like for each of us? So that's the first question. Second question is, in what ways are we taking our eyes off of Jesus? So it's, you know, with Peter, he has this burst of faith, this burst of energy. He's like, I'll do anything for you, Jesus. He goes all in, but then he got distracted. He loses sight of him. And, and I think, like, think about your life. Have you had moments like that? Maybe it's when you first came to Christ. It's like, I'll do anything for you. I'll, I'm laying down everything. And you can even go to the very extreme and even become, like, a little bit legalistic or something on that side of it. But you're just like, everything for Jesus, Right? But then you realize, shoot, this isn't a sprint. This is, we should have Billy come up here to explain what an ultra marathon is like. This is an ultra marathon. You know, I've never done one, but, you know, 100K, 100-mile race. Um, as Billy describes it to me, um, a lot of peaks and valleys, right? Um, that's a lot, a lot of bit how, um, how life is, right? There's night and there's day, there's hot and there's cold. There's strength and weakness. There's injury and health. Like, it's a long haul through this Christian life. Many of us are probably experiencing a lot of that right now. But remember, see it as an ultramarathon, not a sprint. Pace yourselves. As you're going all in, remember that um, let's not get caught up in the measure of our faith, like that short burst of, oh, look at my faith. But remember, the consistent, long haul, keeping your eyes on the focus of your faith, the object of your faith, keeping your eyes on Jesus is the only thing that'll sustain you through an ultra marathon um, that is living for Jesus in this life, right? And so um, just identify whether you need to write it down um, or process with someone, what areas of your life are you maybe distracted or undisciplined or falling off the path of following Jesus? Um, We can be real about that. We can be honest about that. Jesus doesn't want us to hide. He wants us to come just as we are. And, uh, and repent and turn our eyes back on him. So number three, last one here. In the storms of your life, who do you say Jesus is? I think this is the main point, the big idea of the whole thing. It took a storm for the disciples to see Jesus for who he really was. They had to be in a storm. It wasn't in the calm, it was in the storm. They didn't ask for it, but Jesus knew they needed it, and he had purpose in it. It was part of his design to take them through the storm to show him, to show them himself, right? And if you're like me, so oftentimes through our trials and our suffering, in our conflicts, in our weaknesses, it's so easy to try to scramble to get out of the storm as quick as we can, right? To numb out, to escape it, but be open to what God wants to show you through it. Right? It's easy to get confused during trials with God and, and kind of be like, you know, our storms and our trials don't reveal, they reveal that God isn't there. They reveal to us that God doesn't love us. That's the opposite of what God's doing. The storms reveal the depth of which God goes to love us because he's giving us more of himself. So who do we say Jesus is during our storms? And like the disciples, who do we say that he is after our storms? When he calmed the storm, they're like, oh, this is who you are. I see your faithfulness. Now I'm going to go tell people about it, right? So often in the middle of it, we don't see 
always God's goodness, but look back on it and be like, God, you brought me through that. I'm going to remember that, and I'm going to testify to that. And as we close, I just want to kind of settle on Peter, right? He's an incredible case study. If there's anyone who understood what goes into navigating the storms of life, it's Peter, right? Imagine the journey he had been on, called by Jesus to leave behind his profession as a fisherman. He witnessed the highs and lows of three years of ministry with Jesus, endured many tests, trials. He knew Jesus, but yet he misunderstood Jesus. He trusted Jesus, then he doubted Jesus. He worshiped Jesus, then he denied Jesus. He fled when he was crucified. He had plenty of boneheaded moments, failures, rebukes along the way. But in all of this, Peter ended up being the rock on which Jesus built his church. He chose Peter. That's got to give us some hope, right, for us as a church. He chose Peter to grow Christianity and change the world with the gospel. A fallen, broken, doubting man. And so with this context in mind, we're going to end today with one of Peter's final confessions um, written down in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. This is one of his, his letters to the church towards the end of his life before he, he would have he been killed. Um, and it's part of his final encouragement to his brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and I'm just going to read it. So 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, he says this. So truly, so be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that, you're genuine, that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. When your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward of trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Peter had been through the fire. He had been through the fire. And his final word, trust Jesus in the storms. The storms are God's greatest tool of refining us, strengthening us, and revealing who he really is question is, are we keeping our eyes on him, right? The result of keeping our eyes on him is peace today, joy today in the middle of it, and a glorious eternity with him forever. Pray that this encourages us today, um, challenge us a little bit where we need to step out of the boat, but ultimately, as we're going through our trials and our suffering today, but in the future, he'll be faithful, he'll be sovereign, he'll give us peace, he'll be our strength, He'll intercede for us. He'll be with us through it all. May we find a lot of hope in that today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that, that, you, <laughs> that you showed up to those 12 as they, were, as they were struggling and you revealed who you were to them. And you said, take courage don't be afraid, for I am here. God is here. God, I thank you so much that, that you never truly leave us or forsake us, that you're with us through all the ups and downs of life, and that our hope doesn't have to be found in our circumstances or our strength or our efforts, but God, that our, 
Our faith is strong only when it's in Jesus, because you are strong. So God, we, we recognize our weakness. We recognize our limitations, our brokenness, our struggles today. And help us to just surrender, God. Help us to surrender, to take that step of faith in surrendering and saying, God, it might be a little bit out of my control to do this, but, but I give my life to you. I give my, my circumstance to you and pray that you would do what you want to do in that. God, this night changed the world forever. And I pray that, God, in our trials, you would, you would change us and make us world changers because we know the one who, who is God. We know Yahweh. We know Jesus. So, God, we just pray your, your blessing, your favor over this church family. Send us out with courage, with boldness, with confidence, and with trust in who you are. We love you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.